All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest of it and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you have received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What makes you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. I'm just going to pray for Rowan and for us as um, he comes up to speak. Dear Lord, we thank you for this day you've given us and for this time together to dwell on your word. Help us to listen, learn and be shaped by it now. And please help Rowan to teach clearly and faithfully. Amen. Good to see you here again at the EU public meeting. Uh, If you've got a Bible, it would be really helpful to open to that little story that we just had read for us from Acts chapter 5. I don't know if you listened carefully as Christy read that for us, but it's quite a shocking story. On the one hand, it starts so well because, as we had read for us, it describes this Christian community where there was beautiful sharing of possessions to make sure that there was no needy person amongst them. It starts off so beautifully, but then a particular couple in the community, Ananias and Sapphira, a husband and wife team, they decide they too will participate in this and they sell some property and they they bring the money to put it at the apostles' feet so that it could be distributed to those who are in need. But when they come, they've colluded together, They've, they've concocted a plan together They've said, we'll sell the property and we'll bring the money to them, but we'll keep some of it for ourselves, but we'll tell them that this is everything. It becomes clear in the interaction that Peter has, Peter the Apostle, with Ananias, that the issue is not that they had to sell a property. They didn't. It was Peter's question in verse 4 of chapter 5 makes it clear. It was theirs to begin with. They They were under no obligation to sell the property. Neither were they under an obligation to give it all. They could have said, we're giving you 50% of the proceeds and keeping 50% for us. They could have done that. They were free to. The issue was that they came, they said, oh yeah, here's all the money. But it actually wasn't all the money. The, The issue was lying. The issue was deceitfulness. And Peter, I guess under a moment of inspiration from the living God, he, he, he knows that this has happened. And so he confronts Ananias with it. 
And what was the result we read there? Verse 5, when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. I don't know if Peter was expecting that outcome. Pretty sure Ananias wasn't expecting that outcome. He fell down and died. And guess what? Great fear seized all who heard what had happened. And then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. But that's not the end of the story. Have a look in your Bible there what happens next. Verse 7. About three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? He's giving her an opportunity, right, to fess up. Here's the moment, just be honest. Actually, no, it's not the whole amount, we kept some. What does she say? Yes. She said, that is the price. It's a bald face lie. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. I think in a moment, sort of like prophetic judgment, where under the inspiration of the holy God, he, know, he announces God's judgment on her And you see verse 10, at that moment she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Well, you've just heard about these events. Are you seized with great fear? As I've been reflecting on this story over the last little while, I'll be honest with you, I've been seized by great fear. I myself have actually, as I've reflected on this, I thought, actually, I am fearful. That is not inappropriate because when the holy God makes you part of his holy people, he cares about your holiness. There is a right, reverent, respectful sort of fear when you know that you are in the presence of the Holy God. It's quite a conflicting story, isn't it, don't you think? Like on the one hand you've got this beautiful sort of generosity and community-mindedness and yet on the other side you've got this devastating standard of sort of truthfulness and honesty. And it does force you to ask, what sort of community is this? where you have this beautiful generosity and yet these devastating sort of standards. What sort of community is this? So it raises two questions. What community is this? And secondly, how does this community that we're reading about here in the book of Acts relate to contemporary Christian community? How does this relate to your church or the EU on campus if you're part of a Christian community? I mean, I don't know if anyone's fallen down dead in your church recently. Um, I've had people fall down dead when I've been preaching but that was because they were old and had a heart attack rather than, I think, any particular judgment of God. But don't worry. They came back to life again because there was a paramedic sitting next to them in the congregation. But anyway, like, that's another story I realise now. Um, <laughs> let's dig down deep today into this event and ask those two questions. What sort of community is this and how does it relate to contemporary Christian community? 
Uh, now, just a bit of a recap. If you're just joining us here at the EU and maybe you missed the first three weeks of semester when we started to dig into the book of Acts, let me just set a bit of the scene for you. We're reading this book of Acts in the New Testament. The book of Acts is really Luke part two, the gospel of Luke that we heard about just a moment ago in the Uncover program, reading program. The book of Acts is Luke's sequel. So it's Luke part two. In Luke part one, the gospel of Luke was all about Jesus' earthly ministry coming to a climax in Jesus' death for the sins of the world and his resurrection to new eternal life under the power of God. That was Luke part one. Luke part two is about what Jesus did next. After his resurrection, he directs through his chosen apostles, he directs the proclamation of his message that he is Lord and Christ. He directs that message to go out from Jerusalem through Judea and Samaria and indeed to the very ends of the earth. That's what Luke part 2, the book of Acts, is about. However, even Luke and Acts have a bigger framework in which you need to sort of make sense of them. It's the story of the whole of the Bible. Now, as I tried to explain earlier in the semester, I put up this incredibly useful diagram, which you've probably no doubt forgotten, but this was my attempt to say, here are the big ideas that Luke draws on when he puts together Luke and Acts that ties it into the big story of what God is doing in the world as revealed in the Bible. And the centre point of it is the idea of the kingdom of God. When God comes to rule, to establish his reign, his kingdom, and puts all things right. It's right there in the book of Acts, it's mentioned in chapter 1 and it's mentioned in the very last chapter. Clearly in Luke's mind, the kingdom of God is a key organising concept. It stands at the centre, indeed, of the whole of the scriptures. And who is the king in God's kingdom? It's the person of the Lord Jesus. How do you know that he is the king? Well, in the book of Acts, it's made clear because he is the one whom God has raised from the dead. So that ties in the idea of resurrection to the kingdom of God. And what does Jesus do once he's been raised from the dead? He pours out the Holy Spirit on those who have trust in him, those who put their faith in him. That draws in the whole Holy Spirit theme from the book of Acts. Why does God raise Jesus, make him king and pour out the Spirit? Because that's what he had always promised to do, the covenant promises of God. Those covenant promises were focused on the nation of Israel to restore all his covenant promises to the nation of Israel and ultimately to include all the nations of the earth. Now, I just if you're just going, whoa, I don't want you go back, listen to the MP3s from week one, week two, where I go through all of that in much more detail and just take you along nicely so you can keep up with me instead of just dumping on it you like that. But that's the big framework that I want you to have in your mind as you read the book of Acts. It will actually really help you. So where are we up to in this big story? Well, at this particular point in the book of Acts, how far has the message of Jesus extended? Well, it's still only got to Jerusalem. It hasn't extended out. So we're still there in Jerusalem. And what we're looking at is chapter 2 through to chapter 7, really, this section of the book of Acts where we're still in Jerusalem. Now, what's actually happening at this time as you read this little story? Well, I've read these chapters of the book of Acts lots of times and I've taught through the book of Acts a number of times as well and every time that I come to these particular chapters, chapter 2 through to chapter 7, I change my mind about how these chapters work together. 
Why is it important to ask yourself the question, how do these chapters work together? Why has Luke put this story before this one, before this one? It's not random. It's not like you writing an essay. When you write an essay, you just get together all the facts you can think of and throw them in and to get the word count up, right? And you just hope, you just hope that the marker, because they're way more clever than you, they will somehow perceive the deep inner coherence to what you're writing that frankly escapes you, but hopefully will be clear to them. That's how, that's not what Luke has done. Luke has clearly ordered his material. He tells us in the first couple of verses of, of Luke's Gospel that he's written an orderly account for us. So what, why is he, how has he structured his material and what's he trying to tell you by the structure? You need to ask that question because what God wants to say to you is communicated through what Luke was trying to tell his first readers. You need to enter Luke's mind to understand as well as you can what his point was. Okay? So, when you do that, here's my current thinking on how Acts chapters 2 through to 7 works. Beautifully clear. <laughs> For those listening on MP3, I put up a wonderful table which has three headings in the leftmost column. Three themes that I think you find in these chapters. There is, it goes like this. You see the apostles preaching the word about Jesus. They proclaim the word about Jesus. What happens as a result of their preaching? What tends to happen is there is persecution. Out of the preaching comes persecution of God's people because not everyone who hears the good news of Jesus actually likes it. So there is persecution of God's people. But also out of the preaching comes a group of believers, people who actually hear the message and say, actually, I do believe that Jesus is Christ and Lord. I do believe that he is the saviour of the world. I do believe he is king in God's kingdom. And so there's a group of believers established through that preaching. And what do the believers do? Well, they share their new life together, and Luke talks a bit about that. And one of the things they do is proclaim Jesus. And when they proclaim Jesus, guess what happens? Persecution. But also, there are some believers and they share their life together. And what do they do? They proclaim Jesus. And what happens as a result? There's persecution. You get the idea? This is, and if you trace it through, according to that breakdown, you will see that cycle happening four times between chapters 2 and chapter 7. What? Now, if I'm right on this now, I might not be right on this because, frankly, if you listen to what I said 10 years ago when I last preached in the book of Acts, I had a different plan. But I think this is right. Um, if I'm right on this, what is Luke trying to tell us? Out of the preaching of the word comes both persecution but also the new community of God, the, new, the kingdom of God established through those who believe in Jesus' name and they have a certain sort of life together. So what are we going to do over these next three weeks as we look back at this book of Acts is we're going to take each of these things. So this week, life together. Next week, persecution. The week after, the proclamation of the word and the spread of the word of God. That's why we're looking at these three things over these three weeks. Does that make sense? That's where we're up to? Great. Okay, so let's dig in then to the life together theme. So you'll see here there's a couple of different sections which are on life together. The first one is the one we need to probably start with, even though the Ananias and Sapphira is the second one. We need to start with the first one because I think Luke chapter 2 
verse 42 summarises what Christian community is meant to be all about. Right? So I think this is one of those verses in your Bible that you should underline, highlight, say, yep, here is a good summary, Luke chapter 2, verse 42, of what, in one sentence, what Christian community is really meant to be about. So let's have a look at it. If you want to turn it up in your Bible. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 to 47. But I'm going to start just a bit before that so you can hear the preaching bit, right? The preaching bit. I'm going to jump in there at verse 38. Uh, Peter replied, Repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptised and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Right, there's the preaching of the good news of Jesus. There's a response, 3,000. And in fact, because this is actually the end of the very first Christian sermon, the one that Peter preached at Pentecost, at that particular point there's no persecution in his first, first example of Christian preaching. But as we see as we go through these chapters, the persecution is going to ramp up. But we'll come to that uh, next week. So there's the preaching and then 3,000 were added to their number that day. Then we jump into verse 42. What were these Christians doing? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. In one sentence, Luke has sort of captured, summarised what he thinks the new Christian community, how they spend their life together. They devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Why do I think this is Luke's deliberate one-sentence summary? Well, it's because in the next couple of verses, verse 43 to 47, he fills out each of those little phrases. So, for instance, I'll show you there. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. What then does verse 43 say? Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. So when the apostles do various miracles, as we've talked about before in the book of Acts, the point isn't just to entertain the crowd by doing my magic tricks. Look, you've got some skin disease. In Jesus' name, you're healed. Wow, that's awesome. Let's do some more of that. Like The point of the miracles was to give you a little window into the reality of the kingdom of God. What is it like when God puts all things right? Here's a little window for you in this miraculous healing. Now let me tell you the message about Jesus, the one in whose name this person is healed and who is the king and God's king. So the preaching and the healing always went together. That's why I think verse 43 is related to that first idea that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Next bit, verse 44. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they gave to anyone as he had need and every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. What do you see here? You see here they were devoted to the fellowship. Fellowship is not a word that we probably ever use these days. It just means having something in common together. So, you know, if, uh, if, if anyone here was sort of into, you know, 
the great sport of professional cycling and I would know that you were in the great, into the great sport of professional cycling if you agree with me that the greatest cycling event in the world is not the Tour de France, that's for pansies. It's the Giro. Now, if you're going, well, I've never even heard of it, then I know that I have no fellowship with you <laughs> when it comes to cycling. That is, if you know what the Giro is, then you go, yes, wise words, Rowan. Then, yes, we, we have fellowship. We have something in common. Right? Fellowship is just the having in common together. These new believers in Christ were devoted to the fellowship. What does the fellowship mean? Well, verse 44 to 45 told you there, it meant meeting together. That's how they expressed their devotion to this having Christ in common. They met together and they met each other's needs. They met together and they met each other's needs. So they were devoted to the fellowship but also the breaking of bread. What's this bit? Well, look down halfway through verse 46. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Breaking of bread, I mean, we're sort of, what's that about? The breaking of bread was, it just, it's just means having a meal together because when you had a meal together, you didn't buy sliced bread at the, at the bakery like you bought, you had a loaf. You probably cooked it yourself. You had a loaf and if you had people over, you're having a meal, what do you, you you, you break the bread, right? You don't just pass it around and say, hey, a bite of this. Like, you actually break it and pass it out, right? So you break bread. It just means having a meal together. But where were they eating? They were eating in each other's homes, right? So they were meeting together and meeting each other's needs in the temple courts, but they were also sharing meals together in their homes. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. Finally, they were devoted to the prayers, I think you see that there in verse 47. What were they doing? They were praising God. Praising God is one type of prayer. Prayer is not just about requests. Prayer is about praising God, about thanking God. It's about interceding for others. It's about lamenting before God. Like Prayer is a much broader concept than just asking for stuff. But they were devoted to the prayers, which probably meant because they were meeting in the temple grounds, the Jews had particular times of the day where they would pray and so what it's saying is these new Christian believers were devoted to, they were still joining with uh, the, the Jews from which they had become Christians out of and they were meeting there for the prayers. They were still committed to praying together in the temple as well as praising God with sincere and glad hearts when they met together in their homes. So they're praying together, they're praying in their homes. That's why I think that verse 42 is Luke's summary. Christian community, here it is, one line. Devoted to the apostles' teaching, devoted to the breaking of bread, to the fellowship and to prayer. So if I wanted to summarise it for you, what were they doing? They were devoted to the word, the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to a public common life, the fellowship, meeting together and meeting each other's needs. They were devoted to private table sharing, sharing meals together, the breaking of bread, and they were devoted to the prayers. So how does this relate to us? Well, let's just think about these four things for a moment. Why were they devoted to the apostles' teaching? I mean, it's a bit surprising because these are people who've just come to believe that Jesus is the king. Jesus, the great teacher. The one whose teachings are recorded in Luke part one. 
Why were they devoted to the apostles' teaching? Why weren't they devoted to Jesus' teaching? That would be better, wouldn't it? Be devoted to Jesus. That's what you would expect to read. No, they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. Why? Well, you have to go back to to Acts chapter 1, right? What had Jesus said to the apostles, to these particular group of um, 11, and then one more added 12? He had said to them, you, 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 this little group, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. The only way we get access to Jesus' teaching is by the apostles. Have you ever stopped to think about that? Jesus himself didn't write anything down for us. The only record you have of Jesus' teaching is what the apostles have relayed to you or what the New Testament has captured as that faithful apostolic testimony. So that's why this new group of Christians, they are devoted to Jesus and the way they're devoted to Jesus, the only way they can know how to live as Jesus' person in the world is by listening carefully to the apostles' teaching because they are the ones who are relaying Jesus' teaching and actions. So that's why they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now, that may not be a big deal for you, but let me tell you, there are lots of churches around Australia and lots of churches around the world that are not devoted to the apostles' teaching. There are lots of churches that are supposedly Christian but not devoted to the apostles' teaching. They can be devoted to all sorts of other things. They might be devoted instead to ceremony. They might be devoted to liturgy. They might be devoted to a fantastic worship experience. They might be devoted to just having a good social community together, enjoying each other's company. Or they might be devoted to doing good stuff in the wider world. But they're not necessarily devoted to the Apostles' teaching. I mean, they might be interested in those things and devoted to the Apostles' teaching, but some churches are not devoted to the Apostles' teaching. How can you see that? Well, it could be because, frankly, they're minimising the Bible in their life together where you get that record of that apostolic teaching. Or it could be that actually they go, oh, no, no, we honour the Bible, but, you know, you, you, these apostles, you know, especially Paul, I mean, you read some of his letters, I mean, he was pretty kooky in places and you've got to sort of read that with a grain of salt and apply your mind to sort of work out what really would God want to take or leave out of this you see how there you're actually not devoted to the Apostles' teaching, you're actually denigrating the Apostles' teaching. So you can end up in all sorts of different churches, but I want to suggest to you, if Luke's right here, then any church that is not devoted to the Apostles' teaching, then I don't think is really Christian. Not really. Because you have no access to the teaching of Jesus apart from these Apostles'. So, I don't know what church you go to if you're a Christian person, but if you're going to a church which, as I speak, you sort of go, oh, that, that feels a bit close to the bone for the church I go to, may I encourage you to think hard about what church you choose to belong to because you want to be part of a church that is devoted to the apostles' teaching. 
Now, it's going to matter especially if you take seriously a challenge to think about how might you serve the less roots and the less resourced in the long term beyond sort of your current place of residence and worship. Because there's a lot of churches out there that are not necessarily devoted to the apostles' teaching. You need to think hard about that. That's one of the reasons why I think the EU is such a great blessing because one of the things the EU is completely devoted to is keeping the authority of the scriptures central and devoted to making sure that the apostles' teaching is honoured as part of God's word. So that's a good thing, I think, for all of us. Okay, so let's think a little bit about word. What about prayer? Well, surely we're all on for prayer, absolutely. So I, as I was reflecting, okay, so this is what Christian community is meant to be like, right? Devoted to the prayers. And I've been to lots of churches over my life, not because I'm into church shopping, it's just because I'm old. Um, and so I've just lived in lots of different places and been to lots of churches. And I was thinking about all the churches I've been to and I thought, if I sort of just got really nerdy sort of science on you for a moment, like engineering and science, so I said, I wonder what proportion of our time when we gather together is actually given over to prayer, given over to praising God or interceding for others or requesting things of God. Like, if I thought about what what percentage of our time gathered together is given over to prayer? Sometimes, in some church communities I've been part of, it's a really, really small percentage. Because prayers are a bit boring. It's not sort of energising. you sort of just all got your heads down and eyes closed and you're sort of talking to God. I mean, you're talking to God! It's pretty good. But we just, like, we just... And some weeks the person preparing the prayers puts lots of effort in and it's fantastic. You get to me and go, Amen, Amen to that. Yes, Lord, please. And other weeks you feel like, yeah, okay, good. But, you know, there's a lot more we could pray for. They were devoted to the prayers. Um, what about the next two things? Public, common life, right, meeting together and meeting each other's needs, and private table sharing, meals in homes. I think these two are maybe even more of a bit of a struggle for us. And that's because you're blinkered, like a horse. Have you seen a horse? You've ever seen a horse? <laughs> I mean, in real life, not on YouTube. Like, have you seen, like, do you know what blinkers are on a horse? I realised when I said this yesterday, I thought, ah, oh, they're going to suddenly think blinkers on a car. Horses don't wear those sort of blinkers, just in case you're wondering, oh, I'm turning right. Like, like that's not, horses don't do that. Horses have blinkers that are, they put on their face, face, do horses have faces? I guess it's a face, yes, it's a face, um, around the side of their eyes so that they can only look forward, right? They're called blinkers. And I think as Christians, from often a Western culture, if that's where you hail from, we have been blinkered by our culture. In particular, you've been blinkered by the individualism of our culture. So we think, even of our Christian faith, as it's about me and Jesus. Praise God, he saved me. Yes, absolutely, praise God for that, because you couldn't do it yourself. But when Jesus saves you, guess what? He saves you into a community. He's Think about all the ways the New Testament talks about it. He talks about us as brothers and sisters in Christ. That is, 
He's adopted you into a family. Family have strong connections with each other, don't they? Right? You've been adopted into family. Or you've been made a body part, a finger, a knuckle, an elbow, I don't know, something, um, of Christ's body. That's another image that's used in the New Testament. You've been made up an actual member, a physical bit, if you like, of Christ's body. Or you've been grafted in to Jesus, the vine. Do you see how all of those are corporate images, aren't they? The idea in the New Testament is when you're saved, you're saved into the people of God, not just as an individual. You're actually saved into a body, a family. It's corporate. But we've been so blinkered by our sort of individualistic culture that we don't see that or we see it as an add-on rather than being central actually to the idea of God's kingdom and God saving a people for himself. So my, so my question is, I guess when I think about these, about meeting together and meeting each other's needs and sharing meals together, I wonder whether we just think those are sort of optional extras, add-ons rather than pretty core to Christian community life. They were meeting together how often? Can you see it there in the text? How often were they meeting together? It's there in that passage. Daily, verse 46. They were meeting together daily in the temple courtyard. Now, this is one of those moments where, you know, I, if I was to say to you, ah, so therefore you need to be meeting daily together with other Christians, I think I would be saying things that are not true. Not everything you read in the book of Acts is necessarily what God is telling you now copy it and do exactly the same. Partly because our life is different to their life, right? Jerusalem in those days, we're told, has probably about you know, 100,000 to 200,000 people. The chances are you didn't catch the train to work if you lived in Jerusalem. They didn't have trains. You probably walked there. Your whole life was within sort of walking distance, right? You could walk to work, you walked to your friend's house, you walked to where the Christians were gathering. It was all within sort of walking distance. Whereas you've travelled, well, imagine if there was no public transport whatsoever and no cars this afternoon, you had to walk home. It's going to take you all, right? You, our life and our city with five million people, it's so different, right? So there's, you've got to be careful as you read the text here what it's saying, but you can see here that their meeting together was not just cursory. It was not just superficial. They were meeting together often, daily, meeting together and meeting each other's needs, which we'll come to in a second. But also they were breaking bread in one another's homes. And I was thinking about that and I thought, you know what? You probably read and go, well, the good news is I don't own a home. My, I live with my parents or I live in some share house and some you know, faceless landlord who owns it. And so it's not my house. So I, I don't have... This is a verse for my parents. They should be more hospitable. They should be like... Actually, no, this is for you. This is for all of us. Because, you know, when you go to church, if you're a Christian person, you go to church and you're going out for supper afterwards or you're having dinner before church or you're going out for lunch after church. And Whenever you go to church and meet with God's people and you're thinking about hanging out with people afterwards, who do you invite? Who out of your community do you invite? Are you expressing the acceptance that we have of one another in Christ through your invitations? Because that's what sharing meals together was about. Remember how Jesus was criticised 
for eating with tax collectors and sinners. That whole accusation was, you're associating with these people, Jesus, you are accepting tax collectors and sinners, because that's what eating a meal together signified, acceptance. And you know what? It still does today. When you invite people to come out for dinner after church or before church or whatever, that invitation is communicating acceptance, isn't it? So who do you accept into your fellowship, into your time? I mean, you don't want to invite the hard people. Yes, you want to invite the hard people. You want to invite whoever would like to come. But then you've got to work so hard and you've got to make all the conversation and they're a bit awkward and they, don't, they just sit there and say nothing. And Yes, because we are accepted, all of us, with our awkwardness and our brokenness by the Lord Jesus. So we express that acceptance to one another in our invitations. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the prayers, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread. I think there's a lot there to think on, too, on, isn't it? And so, you know, my time's pretty much gone and we've still got Ananias and Sapphira dead on the floor. Um, <laughs> we haven't done anything about them. So why don't we try and do something very quickly with them before we finish, right? Let's jump to the next Life Together passage, which is there in chapter 4 and 5. End of chapter 4, verse 32. We had this read out by Christy a moment ago, so I'm not going to read it out again. But you notice, this time Luke goes into more detail about their common life. Yes, they're meeting together and they're meeting each other's needs, which is the particular part of this picture that he, he focuses on here. And notice what he says there in verse 34. As a result of them sharing stuff together, there was no needy person among them. That's one of those verses where you just read it and like me, you just read it and go, oh, are you interesting? Thanks, Luke, for that fact. There was no needy person amongst them. That's pretty cool. No, 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 you've got to understand the significance of that verse. The fact that there's no needy person amongst them is big news. Why? Because of Deuteronomy 15 verse 4. Ah, yeah, yeah, thank you. Because Deuteronomy 15 verse 4 said, as God's people, the Old Old Testament nation of Israel was about to, sort of coming into the land, about to come into the land, God said, when you enter the land and you uh, keep my covenant, then I will abundantly bless you and such that there there should be no needy person amongst you. That is, I'm going to so richly bless you as my covenant people that you can provide for everybody's needs. And what's Luke saying? Then he says, here's the new covenant community of God, blessed by God's spirit. And guess what? There was no needy person amongst them. God's plans and purposes have actually come true in this new community. Such was their heart for one another. Such was their love. Such was the abundance of God's blessing corporately that they, there was no needy person amongst them. That's the significance of that verse. Now, when I think about that, I think, is there, are there needy people in my church? Are there people who are struggling to find secure accommodation? Are there people who are struggling to pay bills? Are there people who are needy Christians in our community, at church? And, and if there are, we've got to make sure we help them. There ought to be no needy person amongst us. And if our churches won't do that, and we find needy people here in the EU on campus, then you know what? If the churches won't do it, then we must. There will be no needy person amongst us. 
But it's interesting in the New Testament, it's not just about local care. In the New Testament, this sort of care that there be no needy person amongst God's people extends internationally. Later in the book of Acts, Paul is involved in taking up a collection around parts of the Mediterranean to help the needy Christians back in Jerusalem. It's international, even here in the book of Acts, which is hard for us because, well, the figures I've got access to tell me that there's 200 million Christians who are living in what the World Bank describes as abject poverty. That is below any reasonable level of human dignity. 200 million who claim the name of Jesus as their saviour. And yes, I'm looking at you and I'm looking at me. Because we're the ones that God has blessed abundantly at the moment. As I was reflecting on this with Jenny, my wife, we, you know, over the years, we, we, I realised a couple of years ago that I was giving away, like we were giving money away, because it's the Lord's money anyway, so you give, give money away as much as you can, and we were giving to lots of Christian ministries, we were giving to our local church, we were giving to the EU on campus, uh, you know, through putting staff onto campuses before I was working here, uh, and we were you know, giving away to other missionaries, we know, but then we realised we weren't actually giving anything away to the Christian poor. And felt convicted by this, so we thought, well, how will we do that? And the particular way we chose to do it was we got five kids of our own, praise be to God, so we decided that we would sponsor five other children through a Christian agency. And that's fine, but then you total up what it costs to sort of <laughs> sponsor five extra kids and you go, oh, wow, that's um, okay. We didn't take away our other giving, we just whacked it on top because the Lord's money. So you whack it on top and you do something. Well, this week, right, the Nepali earthquake, 5,000 people dead, potentially many thousands more. You know, there's Christians in Nepal, right? The church there is incredibly poor. And a lot will have nothing now. So Jenny and I were talking this week and Jenny just said to me, I think we should give something. I went, yeah, absolutely. So we're chasing up some Christian agencies who will get money to help people in Nepal. But not, not just Christians, because the scripture says do good to all, but it also says especially to the household of faith. So, so we're going to give. We're, we're finding it and, and maybe you should do likewise. There was no needy person amongst them. And finally then, what about Ananias and Sapphira? Well, I can, I can do this in two minutes. Um, their issue, their issue was lying. Why did God, why was God so severe? I mean, you've seen in the news probably this week, two Australians were executed with a death penalty, right, in Indonesia for drug smuggling. What we're seeing here is God executing the death penalty, isn't it? And it's not the first time he's done it. In fact, if you go back to Joshua chapter 7, you can read the story of Achan when God's old covenant people first entered the land. Achan and his family kept some stuff for themselves that they were meant to give to the Lord. They lied about it. And they died under the judgment of God. Here you get the same thing happening at the beginning of the new covenant community of God. Why does God care so much about lying? Well, you can see there, Peter says in verse 3, who did they lie to? They lied to the Holy Spirit. Verse 4, they lied to God. 
verse 9, they were testing the spirit of the Lord. That is, when you lie to God's people, you are lying to God who has taken up residence by his spirit amongst his people. They thought God either doesn't know what I'm doing or doesn't care and they were wrong on both counts. God knew and God does care about the holiness of his people. Where does that land for you and me? This is why this passage has filled me with great fear. I realised as I was reflecting on it again that quite a few years ago now I lied to God's people. I was, and this is a, this is stories to my shame, I was at Bible college and one of the things you had to do was sign off that you had read uh, certain parts of the Bible in a certain sort of timeline. And it doesn't matter what my reasons were, but I signed off without having done it. Fully intending then to go around and do it, and I didn't. I just let it there. Oh, well, it's just, it's just, you know, a bit of pain. It's just, yeah, I read the Bible. I mean, I... Doesn't this story tell you that God cares very deeply about truthfulness and honesty amongst his people? I mean, it's not the only thing he cares about. He cares about sexual morality. He cares about sin in general. But what do you do if you've lied? Do you see why great fear sees me appropriately? Well, I think the answer is twofold. It's repent when you lie when you sin. So I've made an appointment to go and talk to that Bible college and fess up and say, look, I did this. I'm not proud of it. I don't want to make it right. Because God cares about holiness amongst his people. And I know I'm forgiven for all my failings because God executed the death penalty on his son for me but I need to repent and make it right. So I need to repent and I need to rejoice in the great forgiveness of God. I don't know if there's stuff in your own life where you've been dishonest with God's people or committed sin amongst God's people or there's something that you need to confess to somebody, make right, repent, repent, rejoice, make it right. That way we'll be God's holy people.